following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. I'll just introduce myself uh, again, David Wojnicki, one of the elders and pastors up at Valley Center Community Church and on the advisory board here at IBCD. And so it's just a privilege for me to once again be able to uh, facilitate this uh, speaker panel and uh, to hear from these men. Thank you, all of you that submitted questions uh, through the app. Um, we're going to be utilizing those. And so uh, very, very grateful. Wonderful, wonderful questions. I, I hope that we can get through uh, almost all of them, but uh, we have a limited time, so I don't know. In fact, I think, Jim, it says in our thing, we have till three. Is that right? All right. We'll see how far we can, we can get with these and maybe add some along. Um, so men, so thankful to have you here and to be sharing your gifts with us. And uh, I have a question for, for each of you that uh, people have submitted. And so I'll just kind of take these in order. But please feel free, guys, uh, if you would like to chime in on any of these questions, uh, to please, please uh, do so. And uh, so the first question uh, is for Heath Lambert and... Uh, I want you to be the one to answer this one because it kind of stems from something that you shared last night. And uh, let me just read the question and then give you time to process, all right? I agree all counseling must be rooted in Scripture, and it's imperative that the Word serves as a compass when facing a plethora of hurts, pains, trials, tribulations, etc. that we face in this world. However, God is also the master physician and has inspired those who are both in his grip and not with great scientific insight and wisdom to also aid those who are hurting, if nothing else, to create space for Christ to free them, i.e. using antidepressants. And so the heart of the question is this. Is there ever a place to use psychology and physiology from a biblical perspective as tools to also aid in counseling? So what roles do the secular sciences play? Broad question, but... Uh, but we have till three, right? So. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. As best that's, you can. So that's no problem. Um, so there, there's two things um, uh, at work in the question. Um, one thing is, are there extra-biblical things that are useful in helping people? Uh, and the answer to that question is yes. That is absolutely the case. Um, the, we believe uh, in the doctrine of common grace, which means God gives kindnesses to all kinds of people so that they can know true things. Um, and so absolutely, we can learn about all kinds of things uh, from all kinds of sources outside the Bible. Psychology is one example of that, but we can learn about philosophy and mathematics and all sorts of things. It's not as though something has to have a Bible verse attached to it in order to be true or in order to be helpful. Uh, so yes, absolutely, there are uh, resources outside of the scriptures that are helpful. There are resources outside of the scripture that are important, and there are resources outside of the scripture that are helpful even in the context of counseling ministry. Um, the second issue is what are we going to use? And that's where the, the question uh, sort of puts two things together that aren't the same. So psychology and physiology are two very different, two very different realities. So the, um, the fact is that human beings are created with a body and a soul. We have 
an inner man and outer man. Um, and that means that on biblical and theological grounds, uh, the use of medical interventions is authorized. Um, uh, the, the Bible does not claim to be sufficient for medical interventions. The Bible claims to be sufficient for counseling interventions. Um, but we're going to need a great deal of help. I thought what uh, Vody Bakum said during his talk was so helpful that one of the best resources that we have as counselors is the phone number of a really great physician who's going to be able to do medical exams and be able to prescribe medical interventions for medical problems. Psychology is different. Uh, it's, it's not the same thing. It's not as black and white as the medical interventions. And the medical interventions aren't always that black and white, by the way, but that's another story for another day. Uh, but we, I think we most helpfully evaluate psychology based on three different levels. So there's the observations of psychologists where they watch how people behave and they're able to report information to us that is... Um, always interesting and sometimes helpful. Um, but those observations are debated, okay? Uh, some of them are true, some of them are false, and some of them we don't know about. And by the way, that's not Christians versus secular, that's psychologists versus psychologists. I mean, if you go to Barnes & Noble and pull some books off at random, you're going to find that psychologists disagree with one another quite, quite regularly on these observations. But then, after observations, there's interpretations, uh, and that is where worldview commitments come in, and that is where unbelievers are going to be blind to the kinds of problems that people face. So this is what I was talking about last night. Unbelievers can't see sin. I mean, they can't. That's, that's a really big deal. That means all kinds of counseling problems psychologists don't see. Psychologists don't see the devil. They don't see the world. They are the world, so they can't even see it. Um, so their worldview commitments come in and try to make sense of their observations, and that leads to interventions where we're actually trying to help people. And the interventions of psychologists will always be off base because their observations are filtered through a false worldview. And so we can learn from the observations of psychology, but we should never use the interventions of psychology because they've been filtered through a godless and unbiblical worldview. So I hope that's clear. Physiology, yes, absolutely. If people have a medical problem, they need medical care. Psychology is a little more complicated. That's going to include some medical interventions, but it's also going to include a lot of false secular ideas about what's wrong with people. I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah, that was a very good synopsis. Thanks, Heath. Appreciate it. Um, I want to move on to uh, something that's a little bit different. This question is actually uh, for Vody here. And... Uh, this individual, they, they make notice of something. They say that you often speak, it wasn't said in one of your sessions, but I've heard you say this before, that uh, our culture has thoroughly embraced what you call the 11th commandment, which is thou shalt be nice. Um, and then they cast aside the other 10 for the sake of thou shalt be nice. Now this person then asks an interesting question. They've heard you say that. <laughs> As somebody, they say, who let's just say isn't gifted with kindness, um, that's an interesting way to say it. How can I be a, an effective counselor when the nice approach is not my forte? There's a difference between being nice and being kind. Good. Kindness is fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. So if you're a Christian, you are gifted with kindness. Um, so first, stop lying on God. 
Remember, I told you, I didn't think I was a good counselor because I did stuff like that. I just, that's what I mean right there, right? That was, so, that was kind. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. Stop, stop lying on God because that's the opposite of what God says about you. That's not true. It's fruit of the Spirit. So if you are wrestling with kindness, then my thing would be to point you right there to that text and you look at the difference between the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit and, for, and first deal with what it is that you're producing and why and how it is that you're producing it. And this is, as we just heard from Brian Borgman, this is where we rely on, submit to, yield to the spirit of God who produces those things in us. The last thing we do is say, well, that's just not me. Therefore, I'm okay and I get to be in another category. That's good. Would anybody else contribute to that? Have you experienced those in counseling? How much does personality come into play in, in your counseling for you as individuals? Uh, would some of you fall into the more, I'm more prone to sensitivity and to kindness versus I'm more of a black and white, this is the way it is. And then how has the gospel worked on you in that regard? If it's worked on you, let's hope it has. Uh, George, yeah. Phillips Brooks, who was a Episcopalian in the 1800s, Basic said, preaching is God's truth through the personality of the preacher. It's the same thing for counseling. That's good. Good. Appreciate that. Um, this one is actually, I want for, for both George and Brian, so whichever one of you wants to answer this first, go, go ahead. But here's, here's a question for each of you. Um, what direction do you take in your counseling if the person you are counseling acknowledges that he or she knows what's biblical, what the right thing to do is, but is still stubborn to do it or to change. And then they, then they add to that, so there's a little bit more here. I guess this is more of a question of how do you know if your counseling has reached a wall and you, the counselor, can't do anything else practically to help the person seeking the counsel because of their refusal to change? So what happens when you come to that place, Brian, when if you have a person that actually knows what God requires of them and they are absolutely uh, stiff-necked, will not yield, they're going to do what they're going to do, the Bible is also filled with warnings and threats for people like that. And there comes a time in counseling where you throw nice out the window and you actually go to the threats and explain to them what will happen if they continue going down this path. And then they will say, but I thought you believed in eternal security, in which point you say, you've not heard me correctly. I believe in the perseverance of the saints, and the elect give heed to the warnings of God. And we need to press those warnings and those threats on people that are hard-hearted. And uh, they, don't need, they don't need to be comforted with the promises of God. They need to be afflicted with the threats of God. Now, to piggyback on that, it depends on the rebel. There are people, real case, pastor, I'm going to leave my wife. I know it's wrong. God's going to forgive me. I'm going to marry this other woman. We're going to have a wonderful ministry. And I said, okay, let me get this straight. We went through. You really believe that? Yes, I do. I said, okay, you stay here. 
Give me 20-minute head start. Because when God starts dealing with you, there could be collateral damage. And I want 20-minute head start, and I don't want to be near you. That's a pastor who knows better. If it's somebody who's been struggling and struggling and they're, they're just ready to give up, uh, then we go to the next step, loving step, which is, um, this is another whole long story, why it should be in the church, not independent. Why? Because in our church, uh, which used to run IBCD before we gave it uh, to Grace Bible, hey, we're done. This is, band, this is the one anothering is past this. This is two or three. Now it goes to the elders. This is not church discipline yet, but th- this is beyond my pay grade. You're, it's not getting anywhere, and we can't let you go. We can't leave you in this sin. So we're, we're bumping this up to the rest of the elders. They're going to make a decision of whether we continue through the Matthew 18 process. I appreciate that. That's a significant point that many of you have made, the importance of biblical counseling happening within the context of, of the local church, because outside of it, you can't take some of those steps, George, that you just mentioned, that is for the preservation and the salvation of souls to, to turn them back. So that's, that's good. Um, Jim, something that came out of your session, a question that kind of goes alongside of this. He's wondering, what was it? Um, uh, the, the statement was at least understood this way. <laughs> um, they asked first, why is proper counseling exclusively for believers? And then what they have here is Jim says that he can only counsel believers. Aren't biblical principles in general, in general profitable for teaching? Or is 2 Timothy 3.16 referring to something else specifically? So maybe some clarification, some opportunity there. Okay, this goes back to something that began with Jay Adams that I thought made it clear for the rest of us in the movement where he would say that an unbeliever is incapable of achieving God's goal. And so if counseling is like Colossians 1 says, we're trying to present every man complete in Christ, they would live a life pleasing to God. An unbeliever is incapable of pleasing God, Romans 8 says. And so it's not that an unbeliever comes and you refuse to counsel him or her, but you're not just trying to teach them some morality so they can feel better about themselves and get along better with the other unbelievers. If their morality is a morality of rejection of God and his standards and living an autonomous life, we have not served them well if they came to us asking for help. Our duty is to bring them the gospel, and the only hope they have to live a life pleasing to God is that God would save them give them a new nature which then empowers them to live for his glory. And so we welcome unbelievers. And actually one way you can, you can show them from the scriptures, here's what God requires of you in this situation. And you can no more do this than a fish can fly. You need a new nature. And not that you're under condemnation for your failure to do what God requires. But in Christ, the law being a tutor to lead you to him, you see your inability to keep God's standard. You see your inability to solve this. But in Christ, you can have forgiveness, and in Christ, you can have transformation. So we don't refuse to counsel unbelievers. Jay Adams would call it pre-counseling or evangelism because we're not just about teaching people tricks so they can be more successful in life while living a life of independence towards God. Anybody else want to add to that? Good with that. No, just to go back to 
what I was talking about in my session, that, that, was, that was the light that came on for me when I looked at how I was trained in seminary and, you know, how these two worlds that were set up. Because essentially, that, that old model was adopting a therapeutic model where therapy and coping skills were sufficient, you know, as opposed to what we're talking about here, which this, this biblical counseling and discipleship model, which has the gospel at the core of it. Um, and that, 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 that really was what made it, made it all just kind of, you know, settle for me is that question right there. I, I gave a talk at uh, one of the national conferences uh, on Proverbs says, don't rebuke a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. Rebuke a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own life. So I said, you, you must not counsel an unbeliever. You must counsel an unbeliever. But the counsel is flee to Christ. And, and I often say, look, the best that you can have with the law of God without the Holy Spirit is a Pharisee. And Jesus said the demon was cast out of this man. Seven worse than him came in. I said, if I tell you what to do, you do it and it doesn't work, you're going to be worse off. So you've got to come to Christ even though this is what you need to do in that situation. Very helpful. Thank you. In light of uh, recent events from this morning and the ruling from the Supreme Court, uh, this is going to be a significant issue as far as um, counseling homosexuals, ministering to those. And so um, so this is for any of you to, to jump in on the, the very simple question is this, and I'd like to add a couple of things to it, but... How do we lovingly interact with those living the homosexual lifestyle? And so as, as we come, and Vodi, you kind of made mention of some things, um, how as counselors, how is, even as a church, would you encourage the lay people here, the members of the congregation, how are we to think about this? How are we to engage those um, in this current cultural climate um, who are struggling with these things or actively engaged in this lifestyle? Broad question, I know, but take it wherever you'd like. I think that first of all we have to we have to say it's wrong. That's that's one thing we have to say. For the same reason that uh, you don't let your three-year-old play by the pool alone. I mean, we wouldn't say, "Oh, it's loving to say to the three-year-old, get away from the pool." Uh, you you don't want them to fall into the pool and drown. And we believe something that is just increasingly shocking to our culture. And that is that the homosexual lifestyle will burn you. It will hurt you. There will be wounds and dishonor and disgrace that will flow uh, either in this life or in the life to come from that. So um, we have to say this is, this is wrong to a culture that wants to play by the pool and maybe drown. But we have to say that. I think, secondly, we have to say it's wrong as people who are ourselves wrong. Um, I think one of the reasons that people have not listened to us, the big reason is people hate God and his word and the gospel. Uh, and you can't take that offense away, but we should not add our own offense to it. And, and I think one of the offenses that we have added to the gospel that is our fault is we've been shrill and we have spoken against homosexuality because we don't like it and because it makes us uncomfortable and 
there's the jokes and Adam and Steve and all that mess. And it's, it sounded shrill and unloving because we have been shrill and unloving at times. And I think um, we can diminish that offense that we add to the offense of the gospel when we speak to a sexually broken culture as ones who are ourselves sexually broken. I mean, all of us in this room have sinned sexually, and all of us in this room will sin sexually again. And uh, it's not like our sexual sins are nice, neat, pretty Christian sins. I mean, we're all, we're all guilty, and we all need the grace of Jesus, and we need to speak as uh, those who are equally in need of the grace of Jesus as those we're speaking to. And a third thing I would say is we have to know how to help. If we believe that this is going to bring pain into the lives of people, and it will, it will. This, what happened at the Supreme Court today is not going to pay off with dividends of joy for people. It just won't. Uh, it can't because God says it's bad for you, and God loves us, and so it will be bad for these people. Um, and we have to be the people who know how to help. I'm nervous about Christians who are nervous to say that, Uh, Maybe this is such a hard thing that people can't change. Let's not say that. Let's just stand on the Bible. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And if God says you can change, then you can change. And we're not saying big things about the hardness of a difficulty to say it can't change. We're saying small things about the power of Jesus when we say people can't change. So let's believe big things about Jesus. Let's believe true things about the Bible. And with truth and love, let's call a culture to repentance and know how to help them do it. I think this relates to the previous question in that if I take a homosexual unbeliever and convince him to be straight, I've done him no good. That's not the issue. 1 Corinthians 6 says, such were some of you. It includes in that list sins of which we're all guilty. And so they need the gospel, which brings a heart transformation, the Holy Spirit, a new nature. Then that's no longer their identity. Right now it's their identity. But just to get them to change, to say, okay, straight's okay or whatever is totally, well, we don't have the, we don't have the power to change in that way. I understand why they don't think reparative therapy works. Most of the stuff psychologists do doesn't work in other areas as well. Um, but the gospel does transform people because we know people who used to be these things. And the Bible says they used to be these things. And it's when God breaks them, not, you know, we're, no, we're, like, we're more like them than we're different, just like you said. No temptation has come upon them except it's common to us. I know what it's like to be tempted, just not that one. And the gospel forgives and transforms and, and the people who come to us are typically Christians who are struggling with that, just like somebody else struggles with pornography or anger. It's not someone who says, I'm militantly this way. Those people usually don't want to talk to me. Um, it's the people who, just like any other sin the rest of us are struggling with, and I understand what that's like. We all understand what it's like. And with the mercy and the power of the gospel, God is changing people. I think we need to just remember... Um, as someone put it this way, homosexuality has become the sacrament of our culture. It's a religious issue. It's really not a sexual issue. The ideas behind homosexuality are really a monistic. Uh, if you ever got into Hindu gods and Hindu sexuality, you'd understand where this is coming from. It's, uh, it, it's, all, it's all a religious and the sexual facade 
really deep down, it is satanic in the sense of a religious. And so if you're going after the sexual issue and you miss the heart issue of the God that the person's worshiping, then you've really missed the whole, the whole thing. I think for me, it, this is something that I've been talking about and dealing with for probably a decade, intensely for the last five years. And I've been asked over and over again, why are you making such a big deal out of this particular issue? Number one, it's, it is a unique sin. It's not like every other sin. Not every other sin is called an abomination. Not every other sin brought the wrath of God in the form of fire and brimstone. Um, it, 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 it's unique in those ways. It's also unique in that you have homosexuality and the homosexual movement. The homosexual movement is a 900-pound gorilla. It takes no prisoners. It hates us. It is at war with us. And the church is its number one target. So we need to make sure that we understand that on the one hand, you're absolutely right. We're dealing with homosexuality. There's a way that we deal with sin and help people and counsel people. But boy, what has happened over the last decade or more is that the movement has been wearing us out and smiling while we try to figure out how to be loving to people who are dealing with the sin. Now the movement is at a place where it has two of the three branches of government ready to bring their full weight in an attack on Christianity as we know it in this culture. That's where we are today. So yes, most of us, you know, we're talking about dealing with people and their individual sins, but that 900 pound gorilla is just getting warmed up and will not be satisfied until what happened to florists and cake bakers in places like Colorado and Utah and elsewhere happens to all of us. And happens to our churches. So there's two fronts to this thing. And we've got to be aware and ready to deal with most of them. Because you know, you know what you call the guy who's in a fight but doesn't know it? The loser. <laughs> mm. So <laughs> I close with this question then. And it's... In light of these events, again, uh, tomorrow morning, for those of us that are, wait, what's today, Friday? Let's Sunday, there we go, I'm a, I'm a day ahead. Sunday morning, for those of us that are in ministry or those of us that are they're involved in counseling, um, somebody hears this news, and they come to you, and they are just depressed. Because they just look at the world going to you know where in a handbasket, and, and they just... They're just crushed. They're overwhelmed by the badness in the news. What's the word that you speak to them when they come to you and they just say, I just don't, I just, I'm so depressed. I can't handle the negativity and what I see and what's happening. I tell them simply, I got a good news, bad news joke for you. (laughs) The bad news, we have never been closer to the Roman Empire than today. The good news, we've been never closer to the Roman Empire than today. The gospel worked then, it'll work now.
because God never changes. Yeah, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, let's give these men a round of applause, thanking them. Copyright 2015 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org.